Welcome to the Broken Pie Chart Podcast, episode number 35. I'm your host, Derek Moore, and today we have a special guest. Well, Jay, it's it's always special to have you, but that's Jay Pestercelli. Uh, it, it feels special to be here, Derek. Thank you. Yeah. Well, the coconuts are back, and uh, we got some... The co- <laughs> it's we, pineapples now. Now I got pineapples to deal with. You do? Okay. Well, that's... Uh, we'll, we'll save that for another episode. But anyway, if, if you don't know what the heck we're talking about, last episode, we realized that coconuts falling from trees may be more dangerous than shark attacks, I think is what we, we found out. That's right. That's right. Statistically, that's true. All right. So this week, uh, big week, and I don't, I don't actually don't even know why I said that, Jay, but it's, it's uh, we're, all-time highs. That feels like a big week. Yeah. Well, that actually dovetails into some of the discussion. And I know a lot of us get questions on, hey, the market's at an all-time high. What should I be doing right now? Is this a good time to invest? Of course, we would always say invest, but be hedged. And also there's this thought about, hey, you know, how often is the market down where you would get another opportunity? And so I thought it'd be a good time to talk about that. And then later on, we're going to play a game. I don't know if it's a game, Jay, but it's good analogy, bad analogy for what we do. And by the way, there's also the thing, pre-retiree, post-retiree, is it better to have the markets down early or late? So without further ado, Jay, I know you did some analysis and I believe you're going on Bloomberg next week, Bloomberg TV, and maybe you can give us a preview about some of the stuff you've been working on. Yeah, you, you uh, Derek, you are getting the the first cut at this, right? This is uh, information that you're hearing first on the Broken Pie Chart uh, podcast. Naturally, as as we'd expect. Yes, of course, of course, priority here. So uh, the, the study was to take a look at how often is the market within 3% of all-time highs. That number can fluctuate. But, you know, just generally speaking, if you're within 3% of an all-time high, people just are generally aware of the fact that the markets are pressing against new levels. And the answer may surprise a lot of you. It is over 30, 36% of the time, the market is within 3% of an all-time high. So think about that, Derek, right? One out of three days over the last 70 years, if you took a look where you were compared to where the market you know, has been, you were within 3% of an all-time high. I, I found that number to be um, a little surprising. We, we all know markets you know, go up over time. That's you know, due to things like inflation and there's more people on the planet now than there were 50 years ago, all those types of things and companies grow over time. But just the fact that that often the market was within 3% of an all-time high was a little surprising to me. I don't know what, what your feeling was about that data point. It is surprising because I feel like when the markets are all-time highs, the, the comments generally are, you know what, we're near all-time highs. It's getting a little little toppy. But from your research, I mean, that's more than a third of the time. And I don't think people talk about it a third of the time. So it seems like a more uh, more occurrences than I, than I would have thought. Yeah. And you even this year, right? Even in 2019. And, you know, I know that we were, we were rebounding off of the lows of December, 2018, right? It felt like it took a long time to, to get a new high. And we got one, what was it? In, in April, then we pulled out in May and then we got a new one you know, some new ones here. I think we have three days in a row here as of July 3rd. We had three new all-time highs. Um, but, you know, as you approach that all-time high, the market, you know, you slow down a little bit too. So I think what has happened, you know, when my reference to this year was I think we're actually 40% of the time, 40% of the days so far, halfway through this year, we have been within 3% of an all-time high. 
I can tell you, I don't think there's anybody that feels that way. Certainly, we talk a lot about it and the way you feel shouldn't really impact the way you invest, right? Taking emotions out of it uh, is, is a real important part of it. But you, you, you nailed it on the head, Derek, when you said that people hesitate to invest at all-time highs because why? We're trained and we're taught that the way to make money in the market is buy low, sell high, not sell, not buy high, sell low. And, uh, you know, but when you, so I think that's the reaction to a lot of folks on why they decide to wait to invest. Um, But for us, you know, this is a very normal situation when you're, you know, thinking about all the ranges of where the market could be versus it's, you know, historical high. What was sort of interesting too, you went back a number of years and I remember, you know, the greatest bull market in history was 1982 through 1999, cumulatively on the Dow Jones, not including dividends, it was up over a thousand percent. Meaning if you had a hundred thousand, then you had a lot more money after that. And that, and that's not even adding dividends, but there were, <laughs> I was going to do math on my that's head. That's good math. A lot more money. <laughs> I like it. I like it. Yeah. I mean, that that's the greatest bull run in any, any history, historical period going back, uh, you know, many, many years. Right. So, but on your research, and I realize people can't see a screen as we're talking, but you know, I think about even that 1994 through 1999, and I think uh, what was inter- interesting about that period is people waiting for a pullback never got it, and somebody waiting to go into the market never experienced a good chunk of that bull run. Yeah, that's that's kind of the flip side of this argument, right? So it's, well, if you're 36% of the time, you know, within 3% of an all-time high, you've got you know, 64% of the time that you're not at an all-time high, right? You're not within 3%. But still, that is um, that is not to say that, you know, waiting for a 3% pullback is the thing that people use before they trigger an entry. And uh, I, I think missing out on upsides is, 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 gosh, one of the worst things you could do as an investor because markets tend to go up over time, right? Not every year is up. We know this. But over half the time, the market is up you know, annually 14, 15% or more. And so by sitting on the sidelines, you end up causing more damage waiting for an opportunity to buy in, um, uh, in a, in a, in a vehicle. And when I say a vehicle, I mean the U S stock market, um, waiting for a vehicle to give you a better opportunity. And quite frankly, um, the market is up quite often and missing out on it could be more detrimental than waiting for a particular time to pull the trigger to buy, you know, timing that exactly right is a very difficult thing to do, as you know. You know, we look at uh, something like 2018, and I know later we'll talk a little bit about losing early versus losing late in retirement, meaning markets go down earlier, markets go down late. But 2018 was an interesting call-out point for me in that, you know, the markets retraced. I think Christmas Eve was sort of the, the bottom, right? And so that was a late, late pullback, right? So that was an odd year in that, you know, you could have waited theoretically all the year and got in at the low, but it doesn't always work like that. Yeah, right. If you were any time during two, almost any time during 2018, if you had, you know, pulled, waited to pull the trigger and somehow, you know, figured that Christmas Eve was going to be the worst of it. Yes, that would have been a great time to wait until. Um, but there were plenty of times leading into that, right? October was a pretty bad month. November was flat to down and then December was a really bad month. You know, just deciding when to do that is difficult. But you're right. That was one of those rare scenarios where if you had waited at any point through 2018, you could have got a pretty good price. But again, that was the low we saw 
uh, it was the first, you know, almost 20% pullback we've seen uh, in in years, right? Five, six years it took to, to have one of those happen. And so, you know, if you've been waiting for five or six years for a 20% pullback, you still would have missed out on way too many of the gains. Well, and take the flip side of that too, Jay. Let's say you won the lottery on January 1st. Uh, so after all of the pullbacks happened in December, and you said, you know what, I'm going to wait until the market goes down 10 or 20% before buying, you would have missed over 20% of the upside so far. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. That's, that is, that is exactly right. Um, and, and it's just one of those things that it's, it's, if you could invest now here, here comes the transition, ready for it. If you could invest in a way where worrying about 20% declines was off the table, right? Um, but you knew that you had the advantage of capturing the majority of the upside. It, it, it's hard to argue why you should wait to invest if you have a long-term horizon, right? If, we're, if, we're, if you're saving for your long-term retirement, 10 years, 20 years, or even college for kids that are, you know, children uh, that have 10 years to go, you know, timing that, I know I'm beating up on timing. Sorry about that. I feel like a little bit of a broken record here, but waiting, it just, it ends up costing you more than trying to find the ideal time. You know, if let's say you got, you, let's say you won that lottery in 2014, and I don't have the numbers in front of me what the total return would be between 2014, January to say, uh, you know, December of 2018, you would have missed out on plenty of growth from, you know, 14, 15, 16, 17, and then, you know, picking the bottom of 18 to buy. And you might've got it exactly right on the bottom, but you probably still are not as profitable as you would have been if you invested years and years before. What else did you find? You know, you ran the study and you ran two different studies. One, how long or how many times, what percent of the time we've been within 3% of an all-time high. And then conversely, you said, how many, what was it? The, the one year later, did we see a 10% drop? Did I get that right? Maybe talk a little about those. Yeah, yeah. How how often, you know, on your decision day to invest, if you had waited, would you have gotten a chance to purchase at a 10% discount? Right? Not even a 20, right? Let's just say 10%. Usually 10% seems to be the number a lot of folks say, well, when it pulls back 10%, I'm happy to get in. And the the uh, so the study was if, you know, and on any given day, if you waited one year from now, would you get a chance to buy in 10% cheaper? And the answer is it's 30%. So it's less than a third of the time do you even get that opportunity to buy in at, 10, at a 10% discount, which means you end up spending a lot of years waiting for your opportunity to buy in at that 10% discount. You know, 2017 was an interesting year too. And maybe we could talk about that a little bit. Uh, that one, I think, was within, was that the one that was within 3% of an all-time high most of the year? But we never really had any, I mean, volatility had the EKG of a rock that, that year. Yeah, yeah. So 2017, 100% of the days in 2017, the market, not including dividends, I guess it's even better, right? 100% of the time, the market was in 3% of an all-time high in the year 2017. It was an anomaly you know, in our history of the last 70 years on this study, that hadn't happened before. There were some years that it was in the 90s, but never 100% of the time. And then the flip side of that is how often in 2017 would you have had a chance if you waited one year to get, uh, you know, to buy at a 10% discount? It was only the last couple of days in December of 2017 that that would have mattered because you, you end up capturing the decline of 2018 at the end of it. But almost you know, not, you know, very few opportunities to buy at a 10% discount on any given day in 2017. So it really was an interesting year 
from the fact of, you know, if, if, if anything is going to kind of, you know, make the case about why you should, when you're ready to invest, you should invest. It's 2017 certainly makes that case. I think the other thought process too, for me, hearing that 36% of the time markets within are within a 3% or within 3% of an all-time high is you've got this thing where it's like, hey, if I'm waiting, you know, markets make a new high after they've made a new high. And if I wait, 36% of the time, I will miss out on, potentially miss out on something. Like that's, it seems like a, a lot of time historically that people might not have invested, but you know, every new high is preceded by a new high. Yeah, well, that's true. So I, I um, and, 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 you know, if we were to talk to a, someone who believes in technical analysis and is a technician of the markets, you know, they would tell you that momentum is certainly something that continues. Um, we've always heard the phrase, the trend is your friend. Well, guess what the trend is right now, right? And it's it's up, certainly when you hit all-time highs. Um, there's lots of reasons why markets value themselves where they do. And this, I'm not even saying from a fundamental, just from a technical standpoint, price and volume action will tell you that, you know, when the market's pushing higher, it typically continues to do so. Oh, that is not a bullish recommendation, by the way, even though we are bullish because we're hedged. Um, so we can afford to be, but it's, <laughs> I wasn't taking a position directly saying <laughs> the market's going up, you know, on Monday, Tuesday or Wednesday of next week. Yeah, no. And, and as a technician, uh, as you are, but as a market technician myself, it is interesting, you know, when people say, Hey, do you think the next move is higher, lower or sideways? I say, well, it's one of the three, but here's, what's interesting. If you look at longer term charts, we are at, you know, highs and it seems crazy to look at, at, a, almost a 3000 handle on the S and P 500. And by the way, it was crazy when we saw 1,000 the first time in the S&P 500. So it's just a number. But I always say, you know, we could be at a, a triple or a quadruple top, and it's only a top if it bounces and goes lower. If it breaks through, then guess what? Uh, but to your point, Jay, it's, it's not about trying to time the market, and it's also trying to take away the, the need or the perceived need to be perfect on your entry. Because we know that 36% of the time, the market's within 3% of an all-time high. We also know that sometimes you get a chance for a pullback. But the reality is you might have missed on long-term you know, bull markets by sitting and waiting. And I think, Jay, it goes to the point of you know, one of the core strategies we use is the idea of buying the market, getting the majority of the upside, uh, but then limiting the downside to something like you know, eight, around 8%, you know, maybe 10%, or you have that floor. And most people aren't afraid of an 8% drop. Let, let's just be honest. Most people are, are afraid of something much, much more catastrophic. And that's what the pain point is. Yep. I, I, I totally agree with you. And it's um, there's two reasons for that 8% number, right? By the way, statistically, we picked that number because um, uh, you know one out of five calendar years, the market is down 8% or more. And so we think you know providing value and a hedge and protection um, at that frequency makes sense. Um, and then the other reason is, like you said, uh, you know, a moderate investor uh, should be able to withstand an eight percent level of fluctuation within their portfolio in a twelve-month period. So, you know, those there, it's it's deliberate. We could have hedged at fifteen. We could have hedged at twenty percent down. Um, but we thought, you know, in order to provide the best benefit for you know long-term growth, it's avoid one fifth of those bad years and capture a substantial amount of the upside. Uh, on those good years. And the strategy is, uh, like you said, is, is, is designed to capture 
you know, take advantage of the fact that the markets continue to press to new highs over time. Um, we like to say, you know, we estimate that we capture 70% of the upside, sometimes 75, sometimes 65, but generally speaking, 70% of the upside of the market. And uh, that is much better when you're building a plan that has to do with growth, right? And that's a long-term plan. And so, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll pivot back to you on this one after I say this one last thing. You know, if your uh, plan uh, requires you to make, say, more than, you know, 10% a year, then that's a pretty aggressive plan. Right. That's it's difficult to do that on a sustained basis without enduring a lot of volatility. But when you can, you know, take out those bad years from the equation uh, through a strategy that uses options to hedge um, and uh, give yourself the ability to capture the majority of the upside of a market that is generally up, um, it's a much better way to achieve your goals. I think one of the things that's really key with what you said is the the generally up. And we know that historically over time, markets have gone up. We know that there's been periods that have not been great. You know, if you invested in uh, in March of 2000 at the very high, and then 10 years later, you would have experienced a couple down years early on, you would have experienced the, the 2008. I do think it's interesting, though, you know, there, there was this belief in the markets. You know about the random walk theory, right, Jay? That's uh I do. Yeah. And, and I heard somebody, uh, by the way, they described it. They said if somebody was in a bar, uh, I, this is a, I'm just, I thought he did a good job of explaining this. He said, look, if somebody comes out of a bar and maybe they've, they've been in the bar a little too long and you know what that means. So they, uh, I'm not saying you, Jay, I'm just saying people. Well, people I was like, geez, man, I'm just sitting here on, on, you know, on the mic. I don't know. <laughs> but the, the whole point is if, if the random walk says somebody comes out and they're leaning up against the lamppost and, What's the, what's the most likely place that they'll be 20 minutes later, a year later, five years later? And by the way, the bar is closed, so they can't be back inside. Generally, they're probably going to be right around that. And they, they would come up, it's sort of this random walk theory. And what's fascinating about what your statement is, you know, markets generally go up over time. It's that they do go up over time. And the problem with sort of prices are random is that if you were to run a random calculation in Excel, just do a random number, number generated and you wanted to overlay that against the historical markets, you have to put an upside bias in it. Because otherwise, if you know, the markets didn't go to zero over 100 years. So prices aren't random, in my opinion. And we do have trends. We have long-term powerful trends in the market. And it's this, this whole idea. I mean, if somebody is wanting to save for retirement or in retirement, like you need growth. And uh, stocks over the long run have provided that growth. You know the protection areas. I think is key, though. Um, anyway, I I came. Sometimes you know something comes to me, and maybe that was good. Maybe it wasn't, Jade. No, so I'm glad I'm glad you brought it up, right? And uh, you you touched on the concept of probabilities and where something will be over time, right? And we we know generally speaking, uh, things that the greatest chance of where they're going to be is where they are now. But to your point about having this upside bias over time. Um, you do have large demographic factors that push markets higher over time. That's 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 the point of them. And uh, while any asset class can provide that, um, it's difficult to find alternatives these days that are going to provide it with a regularity or a risk managed ability to deliver on growth. And so there's two things I said there, right? You got this regularity of stocks, which you know, or things like, you know, why you why you choose stocks over things like Bitcoin and cryptos or or even oil and currency. You like that? I, I went to Bitcoin on this on your on your podcast. Um, and the set the I know. Or the second thing is with the size that 
that can help you achieve your growth targets. You know, it's, uh, you know, it's pretty, it's predictable to a degree of where a bond will be when it matures, especially a treasury, right? That's, that's pretty predictable. But the thing, what you sacrifice for that predictability is return. And these days, especially. And so, you know, I'm, I'm going to pivot it here a little bit for you, um, which is, while you have this uh, random walk theory going on, you also have not a lot of other places where you can put money that would provide you growth and hit your targets. No, I agree. And, and I think really the the two classic uh, cases or, or let's say clientele that a lot of people deal with is you've got somebody who is pre-retirement and let's say within 10 years of retirement or, or maybe you know 10 to 15. And then you have the newly retired person and those are really key areas. I know, Jay, that I, we had seen some research recently where uh, the topic came up. Is it, let's say you retire, is it better to have the worst years early or have the worst performing years late? And I think there was one study that's, you know, assuming they were, they were taking withdrawals for, uh, you know, for living expenses. Investor A, who has early negative returns, I think they started with 250,000. I don't remember what the parameters were, but they were almost out of money, I think before 80. And then the the lose late, uh, they still had, I think, plus 600 or something like that. But I, I think that goes to the idea of if losing early in retirement is very damaging and, and something that maybe people are afraid of, it really sort of goes back to the hedging aspect. Like if you can preserve someone's wealth early in retirement, you take away a big, big risk that's out there, right? Yeah. And and it, the, the, one of the key things here is when your money is coming out of your account, because just general investing, it doesn't matter what order returns come in. So let's say, I'm going to give you a quick example, Derek, and I think you'll know the answer here. Let's say um, I'm going to have uh, returns of 3%, followed by 4%, followed by 5%, right? The average of those three years is 4%, right? Add them all up together, divide by three, 4%. So it doesn't matter if I go three, four, five, or I go five, four, three, or three, five, four, I still will average by adding them up and dividing by three, right? So the the order of your returns, and even this, by the way, includes compounding, it doesn't matter. Um, the order of your returns isn't important until, until you start having money taken out of those numbers. So for example, if I just gave you that, you know, that math, um, again, but each year you're taking out 3%, right? A three, four, five is very different than a five, four, three. And uh, because if you're taking out three and your first year return is three, well, you're at zero and you have no ability to gain no matter what the market does afterwards, right? So it, it has to do with linking of when money is coming out and when those returns come and where do you have the most risk? And the most risk of your of you uh, running out of money in retirement is the very first day that you retire and take money out of your accounts. And that's why you want to protect it. Yeah, I think the the other thing too with with the downside protection, it goes back to the whole you lose 50% on a million, now you have 500,000, you gain 50%, you have 750. Your simple average return is zero. Your geometric compounded growth rate is you, you lost basically negative 13.6 annualized, you know, over two years. You just do that sounds, in your head right there. 
Uh, of course, Jeff, of course. No, I've, I, I have, I know there are numbers we throw out all the time. I'm just yeah. putting you on the spot. Yeah, I, I very easily could do geometric returns in my head. Who can't, right? <laughs> By the way, Excel has a, fun, anyway, let's move on there. But at the point is, and then to your, what you were saying, not only that, but if you take big losses and then you're taking money out. So this is where something like a buy and head strategy, where you've got that, you know, maybe that 8% floor, you're taking money out, you've got the floor, you avoid the really, really large drawdowns. And because when you have the large drawdowns and then you're taking money out, that balance gets eroded really quickly. And you never know what the sequence of returns you're going to get. If you retired in 82 and you know you lived 20 years until 99, that was the best period for your returns you could ever have in history. In fact, if, you, if that was your working career right before you retired, pretty darn good as well. Uh, but it's just to me, and you know, here's the other thing too, Jay. And this maybe is the pre-retiree, someone ten to fifteen years away. We've talked about, you know, how many doubles do you need? Uh, the problem is going to, you know, a fifty percent stock, fifty percent bond, or forty percent stock, sixty percent bond. Bonds aren't giving you anything. So this also says I need more growth, and but the only way to reach for that more growth is to have some safety net below. Yep, I agree. And uh, because of the way that the math works over time, there's two factors that help deliver superior returns when you're hedged, even if you're in pre-retirement. The first thing is avoiding those big down years, of course, allows you to have, uh, uh, you know, a defensive posture when things are bad. And and it's not something that has to do with market timing, but it has to do with the natural construction, helps you avoid those big down years, right? It, you know, you always get that minus 40 or minus 30, right? When you're at your peak, right? Everybody always remembers their value right before the big sell-off. Why? Because it's right before the big sell-off, of course. And that's always probably people's high. And so, you know, when you have a 30% or 40% hit on your greatest size on your, on your largest portfolio size, that's going to feel the worst. The second, and so by protecting that, you certainly can manage through, you know, reducing the downside participation of a sell-off. The, the second piece is, and we, we rarely talk about this, Derek, um, and it's because we're in the middle of the you know, largest U.S. expansion in history right now. Um, the second piece is the fact that when you've avoided your losses, you can you know, reinvest uh, while the market is low and buy the market cheaper uh, using dollars that didn't take the discount that the market provided. So in other words, if you've limited your loss to 8%, but the market's down 40%, you've avoided, let's just say 32%, simple math, you could then reinvest that and have more shares as the market rebounds than you had on the way down. I know I went into a different, we call that the hedger's opportunity. And I know we've talked about that in the past, but I thought, you know, supporting your point was important with those two facts uh, associated with this methodology of important of investing, because, you know, even in pre-retirement, it matters to protect. It's, you know, as I'm thinking of that too, and I know we're going to do the good analogy, bad analogy game in a second, but I'm going to flip that around. I think hedging not only gives the opportunity to buy more shares lower, avoid the losses, but we've been talking about how people are reticent to buy stocks when you're within the all-time highs. And you know what's interesting too? I think that hedging, having a hedged equity strategy is is almost a hedge against uh, you know it's a hedge against not buying too, and I'll explain. I mean, if you put money into the market and let's say you're going to get the majority of the upside, not all the upside, 
uh, it's a hedge against, uh, you know, not waiting. I'm probably not, I'm doing this on the fly, but hear me out for a second. Somebody says, I'm going to wait. Well, if they never get the pullback, they lose all that opportunity. Uh, and then maybe they wait till later. But if they put money into a hedged equity strategy, the goal is that if markets go up, uh, you're giving up a little of the upside. But it's it's always, it's sort of hedging your time. Good analogy, bad analogy. Um so I get the point, and uh, <laughs> I I hate to I hate to vote your the first one as a bad analogy, but I get your point. Oh, all uh, right. Sign up, boo. I uh, <laughs> uh, I listen. You're hedging against yourself. You're hedging against your decision making process, right? You're hedging against you know what if you're wrong. You know the best traders on Wall Street are wrong forty percent of the time, and you have to ask yourself: Do you think you're better than the best traders on Wall Street? And you know you're going to be wrong plenty of times. Derek, we're wrong on market direction calls all the time. I'm so glad Never. people don't hire us to, to call the direction Never. of the market. <laughs> Never. I don't know. I don't know what media you've been in, Jay, but oh, right. we're, I'm yeah, kidding. You, that's right. You've never been wrong. I forgot. Um, and so all the time. You know, I, I get where you're going with that, right? You're hedging against time working against you, right? That the odds are going to work against you. And so I I get it. I get where you're going with that. Um, I, You know, Derek, we have a lot of folks have listened to this podcast and, and, and listen to the blog at Zega Finance or watch well, the blog we, at Zega Financial. We, we don't have that many, Jay, but we, I'll, I'll go ahead. I'm, I'm going <laughs> to, I know for a fact there, there, I can think of three of them off the top of my head that okay. are just happy that they let us follow this methodology of investing, regular investing and not waiting and not timing the market. Because I think, you know, everybody will be like, yeah, fine. Everybody somehow picked the bottom of Facebook apparently, but uh, or Apple, right? Those single stocks. But when to invest in the broad markets? I don't know any of them that have reached out and said, now's the time to go. Go long now. Because it's just a hard thing to do. And so um, all of them, that the the, one, the three of them that I'm thinking right off the top of my head, um, and you know who you are, uh, all of, you guys know exactly what I'm talking about when I say you have expressly said to me, I'm glad we just had you do it, right? Just I'm a, you know, I'm a, and these guys all have trading experience and they are men. I think women are probably a little more rational when it comes to investing. But all of these men who I know understand trading and trade on their own all the time in individual names and have their play money, all of them with their investing money have certainly been happy that they chose to trust what history has told them and follow this methodology of being hedged but invested. Yeah, no, I agree. And by the way, I totally, you know, this is the problem when you do things on the fly. What I should have said, Jay, is you're hedging your decision to wait. Because if you're wrong and the market goes up, you hopefully get at least 75% of it. I like that a lot better. And you probably said okay. it and I just missed it. No, I didn't. I messed it up. All right. So sticking, we might as well go into this now because I, you and I like to come up with analogies to explain. Uh, you've always said sometimes, you know, Zega specializes in hard to explain strategies that try to provide a good, a positive outcome for for the end client, and so we like to come up with analogies, like uh, all sorts of ones. So he, here's one uh, I'm going to throw out at you: Kevin Durant, NBA star, and probably, arguably, you know, he's a seven footer who could play point guard if he wanted to. In fact, he has at times. One of the best players goes down with an injury in the NBA Finals. If you're not familiar with the NBA and Kevin Durant. Uh, Google it, you'll find uh, hours of highlights. So he goes down with an Achilles injury. He's going to be out a year. The Brooklyn Nets just signed him. If the Brooklyn Nets are still able to capture 75% of what he was, meaning his upside, 
that's still a pretty good return. Um, and by the way, you know, the Nets weren't going to win the championship anyway. So if they don't, what's really the downside of this? Good analogy, bad analogy for hedging, Jay. All right. Um, uh, I guess I ask, who's it good for? So I'm going to say bad analogy because it's still unclear to me. And so is it good for the owner who's selling tickets uh, or is it good for the fans who are waiting for, you know, a championship? Well, the fans aren't going to be any worse off. What else were they going to do, right? It's not an NBA podcast, but let's look at it from somebody who invests in a team and is, you know, the downside is they probably bring in some more revenue um, and their downside floor isn't quite as, as bad, but the upside is, is potentially good. All right. Maybe it's not great, but we got to call, talk about Kevin Durant on a, Listen, I love talking podcast. about KD, right? It's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's a great topic to bring up. Sure. All right. So the point is, uh, it's not bad getting the majority of a market upside, I think is the, uh, okay. Last one. And then, uh, I think we have a couple wrap up stuff. So somebody recently had uh, to have some medical stuff done. And he said to me, you know, some years like you, you, you pay for your insurance and let's say, you know, you have to pay 3% of your salary. And then uh, let's use an even number, $100,000 and it costs $3,000 a year. I don't, insurance is probably more than that now. But anyway, let's say it's $3,000 a year. So their cost is about 3% of their salary and their deductible is 5000 so really, the worst case that could happen is they have medical bills that are exactly 5000 and essentially they wind up costing themselves 8% of their salary. And the person said to me, you know, they, they went beyond the deductible, so now theoretically everything's free. It's like they would rather have just, you know, why not have $100,000 in medical costs that year? And it reminds me of your what you were saying about the hedger's opportunity, because the hedger's opportunity is, hey, once the market goes down, go down 80% because I missed 72% of it. What do you think about this one, Jay? I love this analogy. This one's perfect, right? Okay. If it's going to cost you money, you know, get the most out of it, especially if you're going to max out, have your max out-of-pocket expense in your scenario, 3000 for the cost, 5000 deductible, 8000 out of your pocket. Load up, right? Have as many procedures as you can. Um, you know, you want to get that special procedure done you've been waiting for as long as it's covered in the plan, then go do it in that year. Right. So you really, in those scenarios, you want the most, uh, you know, the, you want to take that worst case scenario and you really drive it down so that you're getting the most out of the money you invested. And quite frankly, I love using insurance as an analogy when it comes to hedging. There's a lot of ways to do it. Um, I, I, I have an analogy I use all the time and I think you hate it, but I'm going to throw it out there and let's see what you say about it is, you know, when you think about the cost of hedging, um, let's, let's equate to two drivers, right? If you're an insurance company and you're deciding who you want to, uh, uh, insure and you have an 18 year old driver or who's just got his license and, you know, is out there. We'll just say what doing what eighteen year olds do, and then or a sixty five year old driver who has no points and hasn't hasn't had an accident in fifteen years. Which one of those two are more expensive to to insure? The answer well. is, of course, the eighteen year old. <laughs> so, how, so that for us, when I think about analogies of explaining insurance, I've so I've liked your 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 you know, your analogy, and I've thrown this one out at you. Let's hear what you think. No, I I think the interesting thing about your analogy though is that. The 18-year-old who probably doesn't have as much assets unless they're one of the uh, Kardashians is probably doesn't need insurance as much as the 65-year-old or the 50-year-old. Because by the way, the the pre-retiree, post-retiree has been at their peak working years. So the person who needs it the most uh, are actually the ones who have the most assets. And by the way, 
This reminds me, Jay, of uh, you know when the markets are nearing all-time highs, insurance costs the least when it's near the all-time highs. And so now should be the time that somebody is, is getting insurance. I like it, but I think it brings up the question of who needs the insurance the most. Actually, well, it's, you, you, I'm going to even, I'm going to say, yes, you just hit that analogy perfectly because when you think about who needs it the most, it's the one who's been the safest because they've been able to, you know, arguably, you know, let's, you know, been safer, right? They haven't banged up cars. They haven't spent money on cars. They haven't had, you know, uh, a lot of emergency room visits, right? I'm, I'm really taking this one far, but, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you're right. The one who needs it the most is the cheaper one to insure. And the one that is more expensive to insure doesn't have that much to insure in the first place. Now, of course, you know, the, the insurance analogy breaks down when you talk about death and, you know, long-term you know, manslaughter charges on an 18 year old, but that's, listen, that's, that's taking it all the way down the wrong path. But I think you, I love the fact that you brought up this concept of when the market is most optimistic and the, and your value is the highest, it is the cheapest to hedge most of the time. I mean, it's not every time, but just about every time, you know, when the market has the least amount of fear, it's exactly the time to buy your protection. You know, Jay, you've talked about the hedger's opportunity in, in car insurance before. Uh, take that a step further, too. You know, when you own, when you buy car insurance, you pay premiums month after month after month. And when the value is the most, theoretically, and hopefully nobody's injured, no one at all, right? Not even a scratch. But let's say you total your car and somehow you walk away with it without a scratch. You know, you get a new car, but you never had the hedger's opportunity. It's not like if, you know, you got, if you drive in a Mercedes, you got to get two Mercedes now. And really, theoretically, you have that opportunity with markets, if you get where I'm going. I know exactly where you're going. The only, the only way that that would ever work is with, was, would be if all cars lost value as you wrecked your car, but your car value, you know, you lost less and you could resell it and buy, you know, a bigger car and do an upgrade. But that's not the way it goes when it comes to insurance, right? So, um, if everybody wrecked their car simultaneously and you ended up, but nobody else had insurance, but you did, then of course you'd be able to buy all those other cars cheaper. Now, naturally they're all wrecked. And if they self-repaired, well, now this becomes a better analogy. So you're right. When it actually becomes to the asset you're protecting, the analogy breaks down. Um, uh, so but, maybe, maybe you don't but like Jay, well, well, you bring up something though, and that's purchasing power. So in your example, let's say you're hedged and other people aren't, you maintain most of the value of your your wealth. That means your purchasing power went up. It did. Yes. Yes, indeed. So it's imagine if you had a hedge on your house in 2007, 2008, uh, and then didn't lose as much. All of a sudden, you could take that value and then go buy a reduced value house. That's really kind of what happens when you have the hedger's opportunity. That's exactly right. That's exactly. Yep. So that's a good one. Maybe with the house thing. All right. I think people are going to get tired of us talking about uh, analogies. Maybe. Send us emails. We like emails. Uh, So these were a a couple of things. Jay, I think it's a good discussion, though, because we know that people have been asking us for our opinion. I know you're going on. uh, I think you're doing what? Yahoo or The Street or you're doing a couple of things. Bloomberg next week. And I know this will probably come up. But it's sort of topical because it's always the question, should I invest now or should I wait? And I think it's uh, the, the verdict is, look, if you're hedged and you take away the worst case, then what do you have to be afraid of? 
Exactly. Why, why would you not invest here? It's harder to time that dip. Take the momentum, take the general, you know, historical trend of markets appreciating over time, put that to work for you and eliminate the need to get your timing right. Well, Jay, I think that's a good spot to end it. And uh, we'll be back uh, maybe in about two weeks, Jay. We'll do another one of these. And so if you have topic ideas that you want us to cover, uh, reach out to Jay or I. Uh, We always love to hear from people. We've heard from a, a few listeners uh, I was half, I mean, we don't have that many listeners, but we, we have listeners, Jay, and they're good listeners. They're good. They're good people. So, uh, we'll leave it there. Jay, thanks again for coming on. Good luck. And, uh, we'll look forward to seeing you on Bloomberg and some of the other news stuff uh, you're doing next week. Thanks, Jay. Thanks, Derek. Take care. Take care.